we have today some visitors in the house. Uh, we as a church have believed for at least the last 24 years now in partnership and that we are not it, but we are a part of it. And we want to be related to other churches around our county, around our nation, around the world, so that we can have a global perspective on what God is doing. And so we've, during that time, have always related to a particular um, ministry group. They're called New Covenant Ministries International. Uh, if you are familiar with denominations, this is not a denomination. Um, Westside Church is only affiliated via the relationship we have with them. They are our friends. They don't have ownership of the building. They don't have an ownership of a charter. They don't have any say in anything we do, aside from what we invite them to come in and speak on. It's not a denomination. It's a friendship. It, we are trying the best as we can to model what Paul and the other apostles did in the New Testament when they went around from church to church. They planted, they visited, they encouraged, and then they went back to their church. They never said, hey, I'm telling you what to do. They said, I implore you. I'm going to give you this advice of what I've learned, and you're my friend, and I have the highest for you. Please listen to what I have to say. I implore you. And so we, in wanting to model this, will continue in relationships, inviting people in from time to time. And so one of those relationships is with the Sudworths. And so they came a few years back, and it had been a long time since the previous trip. So we're wanting to regularly have them out and have that relationship continue on. And they have a wonderful thing to bring to us today. So I'm going to call up Steve. We're going to pray for him. Lord, we thank you for Steve. We thank you for his gift that is to the whole church, Lord. We just pray over this message that you have prepared in him, Lord. We pray for our hearts to be ready to receive all that you have for us today. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Good morning, everyone. Good to uh, see you all. Todd just said um, I should preach with my American, uh, my Chicago accent. Um, <laughs> I think I'd lose you within the first couple minutes. Um, but it is a huge, huge delight and honor to be here, and a huge thank you to the eldership team for, for inviting us to, to come in. Um, Chuck did say during the announcement video that if you have any questions about the announcements, you should go and see him. So, Chuck, I do have a question. Um, why were you standing with a sword in your hand? I was very intrigued. It's in the lost and found. Okay, so that's very interesting. Sword of the Spirit. I kind of guessed that was the case, but... I was intrigued as to how it, found its, how it found its way into the lost and found. Um, it reminded me of a story. Uh, we were traveling once and flying out of Midway in Chicago, and I had my Bible in my carry-on, and for some reason that got flagged by the TSA. So, you know, I was, I was standing in line, and the guy kind of pulled my, he's like, whose suitcase is this? And I'm like, it's mine. He's like, what is this? There's kind of some strange, it was a kind of a square object. I mean, it was a Bible. And I foolishly said, it's the sword of the word <laughs> and I was like okay TSA swords probably not a good choice of words fortunately he was a follower of Jesus and he kind of laughed so um, that reminded me of of what was going on there um, if you have a Bible uh, Matthew chapter 4 is where we are going to be um, eventually after probably a far too lengthy introduction. Um, but uh, so in the Sudworth household around the holiday season, there are, some, there are some traditions that we kind of 
hold to every year, and we find ourselves repeating them over and over again. Uh, one of the traditions, one of the, the things that Debs and I do every holiday season, we don't go too crazy on this one, but for about two weeks, we invite back into our lives old friends like cinnamon rolls and cookies and other holiday treats that need to make a reappearance. Um, they can't stay around all year long, as you probably know, but they, they do need to kind of be invited back. The second thing that we do every holiday season is we build puzzles together. And when I use the word together, I'm being incredibly generous with that phrase because um, I will start very enthusiastically helping Debs to, to kind of sort the pieces and to build the border and to get some of the obvious kind of easy things done. But then I fade dramatically, um, you know, in the middle section, kind of second, third quarter, kind of early part of the fourth quarter of the, the game, as it were. Um, and then when I try to come back and help her at the end, when there's 20 pieces left, uh, she won't have anything to do with me. Um, in fact, she won't let me within 10 feet of the puzzle. And that's because one year I stole a piece so that I was the one who put the last piece into the puzzle. And she never, she never forgave me uh, since then. And the third thing we do every holiday season is we generally watch way too many movies, and uh, sometimes we watch classics. This year we watched Gladiator for probably the fourth or fifth time. Um, but generally we find our way towards like cheesy rom-coms that we wouldn't go nowhere near at, in any other time of the year. Kind of those really silly action movies. Uh, we watched Taken this year, which is a Liam Neeson quote-unquote classic. Um, if you see a movie with Liam Neeson in it, you can watch that movie because it'll tell you the story of every other movie he's, he's ever made. I mean, it's pretty much the same story just repeated over and over again. But one thing that I started to notice with these kind of action movies, whether they're epics or whether they're kind of like silly action movies, is there's always this moment in the movie where the main character makes this kind of pre-battle, pre-confrontation, pre-war speech. Uh, Bill Pullman, in Independence Day, you know, he kind of like, this is no longer an American holiday, this is the day we save the world. Uh, Braveheart, Mel Gibson, they may take our lives, but they will never take our freedom, in his terrible Scottish accent. Um, <laughs> Russell Crowe in, in Gladiator, you know, uh, that's, that's an epic movie, my goodness. You know, he stands there and he's like, at my signal, unleash hell as they go into battle. And even Liam Neeson had a, a classic. I wrote it down. Um, uh, if, if you let my daughter go now, in an Irish accent, if you let my daughter go now, that'll be the end of you. I didn't change my accent. I just dropped my voice. Sorry. I, I'm, I'm terrible at accents. <laughs> he says, I will, I will not look for you. I will not pursue you. But if you don't, Deborah's really laughing at me. If you don't, I will look for you, I will find you, and I will kill you. I mean, that's literally the premise of the movie. And, and the thing is, th those, are the lines, those are the lines that you remember more than the actual movie themselves. And what we're going to read today is this, this account, this reality of Jesus coming uh, uh, to fulfill the ministry that the Father had given him. The, father of the, the ministry of advancing the kingdom of God. It tells us in 1 John chapter 3 that Jesus came to destroy the work of the devil. And before Jesus stepped into his ministry, he gave a, a pre-war, a pre-battle, pre-confrontation speech that is very different to the ones that I've just read, but, but nonetheless just as memorable. To, to his disciples, to Andrew and to, uh, and to Simon Peter, to James and to John, to Matthew, 
to me, to you, to every single person, in fact, who ever has or is or one day will walk on this planet, Jesus says the words, come, follow me. So what does it look like to follow Jesus? That's kind of what we're going to be kind of trying to, 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 to answer today in 30 to 35 minutes, which is just about impossible. Uh, there's a pastor on the West Coast up in, in Portland, John Mark Comer, who, who actually wrote a book and created an entire ministry in answering that question, what does it look like to follow Jesus? And I love his definition. His definition is to, to follow Jesus means to, to be with to become like, and to do what Jesus did. And in my humble opinion, I, as I say, I love the definition, but the danger can be is that we see that as a, as a stepwise progression towards maturity in Jesus. In other words, we can make the mistake of thinking, you know, if, if, I, if I could be with Jesus just enough, hopefully one day I will graduate to becoming like Jesus, so that right at the end of my life I can get a postgraduate degree in doing the things that Jesus did. Our goal is not just the doing what Jesus did. Our goal is to follow Jesus, which includes and involves constantly being with Jesus and constantly becoming like Jesus so that we can constantly do the things that Jesus did. What I want to focus on today is that last piece, doing what Jesus did. But I do think that that phrase can also sometimes feel a little general, can, can sometimes not land with the kind of personal implications that I think are necessary for us to grasp today, which is why I love what Dallas Willard says. Dallas Willard, was, he's passed now, but he was an author, and, and he says this. This is how he defines the goal of every follower of Jesus. It is to live the life that Jesus would, to do what Jesus would do, if he were me, if he were me, if Jesus were you, what would Jesus do? If Jesus was in the situations that you are in, what would Jesus do? And we need to uh, kind of frame it that way because no one here is a first century Jewish rabbi living in the Middle East. I mean, we are a collection right here of doctors and teachers and business people, people who, who have work, people out of work, people looking for work, retirees, uh, uh, students all living near or in Placerville in, in the year 2024. And so the kinds of questions that we are wrestling with are altogether different in application, but same in heart. The kinds of questions we're asking are, how would Jesus handle the parenting situation that I currently found myself in? How would Jesus react if a client unleashed their frustration upon me? How would Jesus handle the constant rejection after months and months of applications for jobs? How would Jesus handle another month where there seems to be more months than there is money? And questions like that. And friends, let me challenge you. We need to make time in our days to be asking those kinds of questions. Jesus, what would you do if you were me in this particular situation? So what does what does the Gospels tell us? What do the Gospels tell us about what Jesus did? Here's a small sample. Jesus healed the sick. He opened blind eyes. He caused the lame to walk. He raised the dead. He drove out demons. He fed the hungry. He comforted the brokenhearted. He released the captive, forgave sins, calmed storms, preached the Gospel, just to name a few. And as I read that out, it probably feels like trying to drink water from a fire hose. I mean, it's just like one thing after the next. Like, okay, if that's what Jesus did, what am I called to do? John Mark Comer, in his book, Practicing the Way, kind of, 
categorizes what Jesus did into three main categories, which I think is helpful. He says, firstly, Jesus made space for the gospel. And he did that by building relationships and eating lots of meals. And if that's what it looks like to follow Jesus, who's in? I mean, that sounds like, that sounds like fun. But along with making a way for the gospel, Jesus also preached the gospel. And Jesus also demonstrated the gospel. And as we're going to learn, Jesus demonstrated the gospel under the power of the Holy Spirit. He preached the gospel under the power of the Holy Spirit. He made way for the gospel under the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's, a, that's an incredible summary. But I want to offer you something slightly different because I want to get away from what appears to be, again, a three-step plan to, to doing what Jesus did. And so I, I, I humbly offer this as a as a hopefully something that gets to our hearts a, a, a little deeper in, in, in trying to answer the question, what did Jesus do? What would Jesus do if he were me? So here it is. What did Jesus do? Jesus laid down his life to follow the Father by the power of the Spirit. Jesus laid down his life to follow the Father by the power of the Spirit. And I know that is awfully vast and, and, and kind of headline picture. But I hopefully it'll give you something to go away with and to wrestle with amongst your, you know, in your relationships and in your small groups to, to try and figure out how do we follow Jesus as he laid down his life to the Father by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to land towards the end of the sermon on two phrases, two phrases that I hope you will go away with and ask the Lord, what is this, how does this apply to me? Total surrender to the Father, deep reliance on the Holy Spirit. Total surrender to the Father, deep reliance on the Holy Spirit. Matthew chapter 4 describes Jesus, the beginning of Jesus' ministry. The, the ministry, as I said earlier, that he came to, 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 to kind of usher in the reality, the experience, the, the tangible reality of the kingdom of God. First uh, John chapter 3, as I said, Jesus came, the reason he came was to destroy the works of the devil. And in Matthew's gospel, it tells us that Jesus, having been baptized by the Holy Spirit, was full of the Holy Spirit and was led by the Spirit into the desert. I want you to notice that the complete, uh, the, the, the often uh, uh, reference to the ministry of the Spirit in the life of Jesus. Luke picks up the story and he says, uh, Jesus returned from the desert in the power of the Spirit. And he went to a synagogue in Nazareth, and he, and he unfurled the scroll of Isaiah and turned to the section that we know to be Isaiah 61 and, and preached, the Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. This is the Son of God about to launch his ministry, and I want you to notice again, he was baptized in the Spirit. He was full of the Spirit. He was led by the Spirit. He returned in the power of the Spirit, and he preached, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Wow. Do you notice Jesus' complete dependence, deep dependence on the ministry of the Spirit in his life in order for him to fulfill the call that God had for him? If that's the case for Jesus, how much more so for you and for me? And so Jesus, just before he goes and leaves the synagogue and, and, and goes to do the things that he just had read from Isaiah 61, he first decides to find some friends who can go with him to do the work that God had called him to do. So we're going to pick up the story in Matthew chapter 4, verse 18. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. 
Come, follow me. Come, follow me, Jesus said. And I will send you out to, uh, I will send you out to fish for people. Some translations say, I will make you fishers of men. I, I, I love that. Jesus says, I will make you. I'll, I call you and I will make you. I love that. Um, at once, they left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. And they were in a boat with their father Zebedee, preparing their nets. Jesus called them, and immediately they left the boat and their father, and they followed him. Now, don't turn there, but I also want to read us two verses from the book of Mark, which describe Jesus also calling Matthew the tax collector. Mark chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. And as he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, who we know to be Matthew, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. In, in the book of Luke, Luke describes both of those incidences, and Luke adds this phrase. In both instances, they left everything and followed him. They left everything and followed him. Andrew lived with his brother and his family. Andrew lived with Simon Peter and his family. And I want you to picture them coming home from work that day. Busy day, fishing, they come home, and, uh, and Simon Peter's wife might have said, hey, hey honey, hey Andrew, how was your day? And I can imagine Simon Peter going, um, yeah, um, it was good. We quit our jobs. And, and she must have been like, what? Why on earth would you do that? And he would have said, well, you know, this rabbi called Jesus told us to follow him. I mean, can you just, can, can you imagine trying to, like hearing that for the first time? I mean, it must, it's wild. And, and we've got to ask the question, what on earth stirred in those men to give up everything to follow Jesus? And because we live in this, time, time, uh, this day and age, having read the entire gospel, we assume it was because they had a revelation that Jesus was, the, was God's Lord, God's Messiah. But it wasn't. It, it, Jesus is the Lord. Don't get me wrong. But their revelation of Jesus as Lord hadn't fully developed. It would only happen a, a few years later as they continued to follow Jesus. So what was it? that Jesus did, or what was it that Jesus said that caused these men to give up everything to follow him? And it's the words Jesus chose. The words he chose to call these men, and the words he chose and chooses to call every single one of us, come follow me. It's the ultimate achievement for, it was the ultimate achievement for for any boy in Jewish culture in biblical times to become a rabbi. It was their hopes and dreams. It was the hopes and dreams and aspirations of their family because becoming a rabbi came with incredible social prestige. The sad reality, though, is only a small fraction actually ended up becoming rabbis. Most young boys ended up in the family business. But irrespective of where they would end up, every single young boy would go through rigorous training on, on learning about the Torah and, and at home learning to memorize huge sections of the Torah. And they would do all of this while learning the family business because the inevitable would happen. They wouldn't make the grade and they'd end up doing the family business. 
We read just a few moments ago in Matthew chapter 4 that, um, that the sons of Zebedee, James and John, were fishing with their father. They hadn't made the grade. They hadn't been chosen as disciples of a rabbi and so ended up doing the family business. And so as these young boys would learn about the Torah and, and, and memorize huge sections of the Torah, and as they grew older, this, this potential pool of disciples became smaller and smaller. Eventually, they would learn how to engage in, in, in understanding the teachings of the Torah by learning to ask and answer questions. You might remember in Luke chapter 2, when Jesus was a young boy, Mary and Joseph, his earthly parents, lost Jesus. I mean, that's a, that's a whole other kind of series of sermons for another time. I mean, they lost the Son of God. Imagine, imagine them standing before the Heavenly Father one day. Okay, Lord, I'm sorry. We lost him for a short while. But it tells us in Luke chapter 2 that Jesus was eventually found in the temple courts, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking questions. That's how they learned about the Word of God. Now, a rabbi's teaching, a rabbi's interpretation of the Torah was um, culturally known as a yoke. It's fascinating that Chuck brought Matthew chapter 11. The yoke described how a rabbi interpreted the word of God. In, in uh, Matthew chapter 7, after Jesus had taught the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds made some comments about Jesus' teaching, about Jesus' yoke. It says this, When he had finished, the crowds were amazed at his teaching, because he taught as one who had authority, and not as their teachers of the law. In fact, the authority that Jesus carried was not just the authority of fresh insight into understanding the Word of God, but it was the authority where the presence of God encountered evil spirits and sicknesses and diseases, and people were healed and set free when Jesus taught. Mark chapter 1 tells this, uh, this incredible encounter that Jesus had in the synagogues. When he was teaching, he actually ended up driving a demon out of a person. And the crowds in the synagogue said this, What is this? A new teaching. And with authority, he even gives orders to impure spirits, and they obey him. Jesus himself describes his teaching. He describes his yoke. Chuck read it for us. Uh, Matthew chapter 11, he says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. Yes, Jesus is using the analogy of, of two animals being yoked together. But essentially what he's saying is, take my teaching upon me, uh, upon you. Take my teaching of grace and mercy and patience and love and authority and power. Take that upon you, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke, for my teaching is easy and my burden is light. Friends, it's no wonder Jesus had to teach on a mountainside because the synagogues were way too small to handle the crowds of people that were coming together. Here is this, this new rabbi, this new rabbi carrying authority, teaching insightful ways into the Torah and releasing the power of God so that the kingdom of God is experienced at hand. 
Now, typically, rabbis would, would come to the, the kind of schools, the local synagogues and, and, and the temple to, to choose these young disciples as they graduated from school. The best of the best would be picked by the rabbis. And do you know how they chose them? Do you know how they called them? They used the words, come, follow me. It was the words every young Jewish boy longed to hear but hardly any got to hear it. I mean, in our day and age, it's something akin to a young football player growing up and going to college and then hearing the words with the first pick of the draft. The Chicago Bears, because we have the first pick of the draft. The Chicago Bears select. I mean, it's, it's, that, kind of, it's that kind of experience. It's that kind of, um, uh, that's what I long to hear one day. But you see, Jesus, this new rabbi, did not go to the schools to find his disciples. Jesus, it tells us in Luke chapter 6, after spending the night in prayer, spending the night kind of calling out to God the Father, goes to the, the side of the lake, the, 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 the um, Lake Galilee, to go and to look for his disciples. And, and it tells us that while he was walking on the side of the lake, he saw Simon and Peter, uh, sorry, Simon and Andrew and James and John and Matthew. That, that word to, to saw, that word to see, is a very, very important word. Because we assume that Jesus saw because of biology, the way that you and I see. But when you dig into that word, it actually talks about Jesus saw with prophetic insight. Jesus saw with a perception that far, is far greater than just the ability to see with the natural. Jesus saw these men with God's plan and purpose upon them. Jesus saw with prophetic insight. And because of that, he calls these men. And in calling them, come follow me, Jesus is qualifying previously disqualified men. Men who thought their best was over. Men who thought they had failed. Men who were stuck in the family business, although they longed all their life to be a disciple of a rabbi. And with the words, come follow me, they had an opportunity to live out their dreams. Friends, Jesus is doing this still today. Jesus is doing exactly that to, not just to men, but to men and women. He's doing exactly the same thing. Jesus sees us. Jesus sees you. He sees God's best for you. And he sees God's best on you. And Jesus not only sees you, but he calls you. He calls you to come follow me. You, you, you might be here and you think you're, you're, you're overlooked. You've, your best is past. There's no way that you have a future. And I want to say, friends, no matter how old you are here today, young or old, Jesus is calling you, come follow me. And in doing so, he is qualifying you because he has a plan and a purpose for your life. He says, come follow me, I will make you a fisher of men. Come follow me, and in doing so, he transforms you. He changes you into the man and the woman that he has called you to be. He transforms us so that we can follow him and do the things that, he's called, he, that he did. Preaching the word of God under the power of the Holy Spirit. Declaring the truth of God. Healing the sick. Raising the dead advancing and demonstrating the kingdom of God. Amen. But there are two things that, these, that, that, that was required of these disciples. And we're quickly going to have a look at them before we kind of land today. The first thing is, 
These disciples, we as disciples of Jesus, are called to follow him comprehensively. And that simply means we are called to follow him wholeheartedly in with total surrender. Do you remember how Andrew and Simon responded? How Matthew responded? How James and John responded to Jesus' call? They left everything and they followed him. And as exciting and remarkable and stirring as that example is, we're not called to follow them. We're called to follow Jesus. And so the question we have to ask is, how did Jesus follow the Father? Jesus followed the Father completely. Jesus followed the Father with total and absolute surrender and trust in, his, in, in, in God the Father. James chapter 5, verse 19. The Son, this is Jesus himself saying this, the Son can do nothing by himself. And it doesn't mean the Son is not able to do anything by himself. It means the Son chooses to do nothing by himself. The Son chooses to surrender to the will of the Father. He, not, he does only what he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, the Son does also. But a far more challenging verse, a far more impactful verse, when it comes to understanding how Jesus followed the Father, surely has to be Luke 22, the night before Jesus was crucified, where he cried out to his Father, Father, if you are willing, take this cup of suffering away from me. I mean, friends, how many of us have prayed a prayer like that? Lord, I, I can't do this. I can't continue. Take this from me. And then he says, but not my will. Your will be done. I mean, let's be real. That's an easy verse to read, isn't it? But it's a, it's a, it's a challenging verse to pray. And an altogether even more challenging verse to live out. But, but, but friends, that's what Jesus has called us to. He's called us to a life of surrender. That's what it means to pick up our cross and to follow him. We won't turn there now, but in, in, in the gospel of Mark, Jesus says to everyone, come, come disciples, come, come all who can hear me, come and, and, and follow me. But to follow me, you need to pick up your cross. The cross represents total and complete surrender. The cross, well, let's be real. The cross represents death, death to self. And Jesus is saying, just as I died for you, I'm asking you as followers to die and to lay your lives down, which sounds like a hard teaching. And it is, friends. But let me ask you this. What's on the other side of death? Resurrection. That's on the other side of death. As Jesus laid his life down and was resurrected three days later, we are too are called to lay down our lives and as we do so, our lives are resurrected into the glorious life that God has called us to live. Resurrection life. Life full of the characteristics of heaven. The only way we can follow Jesus, friends, is with total surrender. And that applies to every single one of us. You might be here today and you may have never uh, surrendered your life to Jesus. And today you will, ha you will have the opportunity in a few moments. I'm going to invite you to potentially... To, to respond to the invitation from Jesus to come follow me. But can I say, friends, this, this, this truth is applicable to every one of us here, even if we do follow Jesus. Because myself included, there are areas in our lives that we, we hold back from God. We say, thank you, Lord. I, on this area, I, I, I can't. I, I don't know how to trust you in this area. I, I've been hurt too many times in this area. 
How do we lay our lives down completely? It brings us to the second point. We not only follow Jesus comprehensively, we need to follow Jesus closely. We need to follow Jesus closely. And as we follow Jesus closely, we, we see that Jesus was completely dependent, desperately reliant, if I can use that phrase to be a little provocative, desperately reliant on the person and presence of the Holy Spirit. How much more so do we need to be? There's this beautiful blessing that is spoken over, over disciples as they begin their journey of following their rabbi. And it's this. May you be covered in the dust of your rabbi. Isn't that a beautiful uh, uh, kind of word picture? Essentially, they were saying, follow the rabbi. Follow your rabbi so closely that the dust that is kicked up by their sandals, it, that it would cover you. Ty in the break said to me, that he said, you can only be covered by the dust of your rabbi if you're following. You see, if you're ahead and you're, and you're running ahead of your rabbi, you're not getting covered in anyone's dust. Are we that close to Jesus? Are we tucked in so tightly to Him that the dust that is getting kicked up as He walks is covering us? And friends, the picture that we have as we tuck in close is we see Jesus, everything He did as He ministered on earth, His ministry was under and depended upon the power of the Holy Spirit. I don't want to get into this kind of theological discussion, but, but Jesus, what Jesus did as he raised the dead and preached the gospel and fed the poor and healed the sick, he did not as God, but as Jesus, as, as man with his deity veiled. He was still fully God, but also fully man and reliant and, on the power of the Holy Spirit and in surrender to the Father. This is a very simple illustration, but... But, you know, most dads love to, if they have sons, they love to at some point wrestle with their, with their boys. I, I have a son who's 17, and when he was younger, I would wrestle with him. But, you know, being as immensely strong as I am, I, I, had, to, I had to veil my strength. I had to kind of set aside my strength so that I wouldn't destroy him. It's not the case now, but uh, don't let him know that. Occasionally we do wrestle, and I'm a little intimidated. He's... He's 17 and he's starting to work out a gym and it's making me a little, a little nervous. But the point being is Jesus, Jesus veiled his deity and relied entirely on the power and presence of the Holy Spirit to set an example for us to follow. What Jesus did, we are called to do too. And it's why Luke writes in, in Acts chapter, chapter 10, verse 38, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil because God was with him. Jesus is the example for us to follow. It's why Jesus told the disciples as they were asking God, God as they were asking Jesus, Jesus, is it now time? Is this the moment you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus wouldn't play that game of, of telling times and dates. He said, I'm, I'm not going to answer when, but I'm going to show you how how the kingdom will come. And he says, wait. Wait for the Holy Spirit. Wait for the baptism of the Spirit. Wait for the outpouring of the Spirit. And you will be filled with the power from on high. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and the outermost parts of the world. And that's what happened in Acts chapter 2. The disciples were gathered together in prayer, crying out to God 
in all reality, timid and afraid. And the Spirit of God fell upon them. Tongues of fire came down and they burst out of the upper room into the streets of Jerusalem and with boldness and courage began to do the works that Jesus did. Preached with fire, healed the sick, raised the dead. And as you read the book of Acts, they did greater works than Jesus did. When Jesus died, he had a few hundred followers. Do you know that within 200 years, there were 20 million followers of Jesus? Exponential growth that Jesus promised as, they, as, as his followers come under the anointing and power of God. Friends, Paul makes it so simple for us and so accessible for us as, what it look, as to what it looks like to follow Jesus. We don't have time to go into details, but he uses three phrases, three uh, 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 verses. Galatians 5, he says, learn to keep in step with the Spirit. Learn to keep in step with the Spirit. Essentially what that means is, is look for the rhythm of the Holy Spirit. Chuck spoke about uh, 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 rhythms, the importance of, of just slowing down so we can pick up on the rhythm of the Spirit. And secondly, in Romans chapter 8, Paul says, learn to be led by the Holy Spirit. Learn to tuck in behind the Holy Spirit. Learn to ask the questions, Holy Spirit, what are you doing? Where are you going? What are you saying? Keep in step with the Spirit, led by the Spirit. And then thirdly, in Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says this, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. I used to teach... I used to teach our church, you know, the, this, the, the analogy of being filled with the Spirit was, was, was like a, an, an empty container, an empty jug or an empty vase or an empty glass. And to be filled with the Spirit was to pour water into that vase or jug or, or, or glass, which is, which is an okay analogy, but it's very static. And I don't think when, when, when Paul says, be continuously filled with the Spirit, it's necessarily just us standing still and the Spirit of God being poured out upon us. It's something of a more of a dynamic partnership with us and the Holy Spirit. And so, and so the analogy that I've kind of landed on recently is the analogy of sailing. I'm not a sailor, but, but I've learned as I've watched and, and read that, that sailors of increasing skill and ability have to be very attuned to the breath of the wind. Someone was telling me between the services, so much so that before the wind is felt, you can see the wind on the water. And you position your boat before the wind is even blowing, so that as the water is beginning to shimmer, you position your boat so that when the wind blows, the sails are full and you are empowered by the wind. Isn't that a beautiful picture of, of, of what it looks like to be full of the Spirit? Our oldest daughter, she's graduated now, but when she was at school in Boston, she was on the, on the rowing team. And we used to sometimes go to Boston and, and, and sit on the edge of the Charles River and watch her team as they were, all eight of them, these, these athletes, kind of in, incredible physical condition, all of them straining on the oars, perspiration pouring down their face. And this, and this boat was kind of cutting through the water impressively, but they were exhausted. Doesn't that describe sometimes how we feel when we are trying to follow Jesus? I'm doing my best, Lord. I'm trying my hardest. And you know what? We would sit there and in the distance on the Charles River, inevitably, we would see some sailor sitting in a boat, just positioning the sails as they learn to pick up on the breath of the Spirit, and they would end up going far faster 
than the boat that my daughter was in. Mm. Friends, that's the model for what it looks like to follow Jesus. And that's what Jesus is calling us to, to do the things that he has called us to do. To follow Jesus means we follow him comprehensively. To follow Jesus means we follow him closely. Before I end, I want Debs to come up and share a word that she felt for the church. And I think it ties in really nicely to this message. Because I think there's an opportunity after Debs has shared, just for us to take two minutes, two or three minutes, just to respond. And to say, Lord, in what areas are you asking me to surrender? In what areas are you asking me to unfurl my sails so that I can be full of your presence and spirit? We were having a meal uh, yesterday with someone, and while we were ending in prayer, I got a picture of uh, clear crystal water. And the sun was shining onto the water in such a way that it was reflecting like this piercing, very focused beam of light. And I asked the Lord, what does this picture mean? Um, What are you wanting to say? And I looked up um, crystal clear waters and what causes that and Um, one of the things I read was that when there is turbulence in water, when there is rapids or, you know, a force behind water, it can stir up the sediment and it can bring up the dirt and the water becomes murky and you can't really see it. Um, And the sunshine actually is unable to penetrate the water in those times and and is unable to bring life to the bottom of the, the river where there's vegetation. But when that sediment settles... The water becomes clear and the light can penetrate and actually brings more oxygen to the water and the vegetation begins to grow underneath, which really in essence symbolizes the life that God wants to bring to us. And that life can only happen when we actually still ourselves, still the turbulence in our lives in order for that sediment to settle and for the light to pierce the water. And, you know, over the conversations we've had this week, I've, this weekend I've chatted with people and I've heard that some people, it's hard for them to still themselves to process. It's easier to keep going. It's easier to either create your own turbulence or just allow the turbulence to keep going. It's actually harder to still yourself. It's harder to process. It's harder to let God into those areas of our life. But when we do... When we still ourselves and fall in line with what the Holy Spirit is wanting to do, he is able to pierce and penetrate that water and bring life to those dead Mm. areas. So I hope that encourages you Mm. this morning. Yeah. Maybe we can just take a minute or two uh, just to respond to that. Can I ask you maybe just to close your eyes, not because we're trying to be religious or anything, but just as a a way of stilling our hearts. And and I think what Debs has picked up on is so true. You know, we, we don't kind of live a lifestyle of, of stilling our hearts in two minutes. But maybe as you still your heart over these next two minutes, it's something of a, Lord, help me to, to do this as a lifestyle. Help me, Lord God, to, to grow in what it looks like to, to, to take on that yoke. Not the yoke of religion, not the yoke of rules, but the yoke that is easy, the burden that is light, the yoke of grace. And so, Lord, as just as the, as, the, as the wind of God, as the Spirit of God is blowing in this place, Lord, I know that for every person here, the response is different. I know, Lord God, we are, we are sailors, as it were, of different experience and different ability. But, Lord God, would you show us, everyone here, 
how to position ourselves, how to respond, how to be led by you, Holy Spirit, how to, how to keep in step with you. What does it look like, Lord God, for us to follow you with total surrender? Maybe the Lord is just revealing to some of you right now areas that, you, that you've held on, things that you are struggling to release to the Lord. Sometimes we can so clench our fists. And maybe today is the day where the Holy Spirit gives you the courage to unfurl, unfurl your fingers and just to keep your hands open. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Would you still our hearts? Help us to follow you. Help us to keep in step with you. Help us to be led by you. We want to be led by you, Lord. Would you fill us in this moment? And then, Lord, would you show us what that looks like tomorrow? Thank you that being filled by your Spirit is not just something that happens between 11 and 12.30 on a Sunday morning. But it's a daily lifestyle of following you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Uh, one of the things when Matt is here, he always says at the end of the service, is the only appropriate response is to worship. And so we're going to close out our meeting time together with worshiping the Lord. So I'm going to ask the musicians to come forward. They're going to lead us in one more song of reflection as we consider what God has said to you today. Steve shared a message, but God spoke something to each individual here a little differently. So what's God saying to you? How are you actually going to walk that out in your life as you leave these doors, as you go out into your week? And then it needs to become real for you beyond this moment. What's God saying?